Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Good morning everyone and uh, thanks very much to King's College for the invitation to be with you uh, this afternoon, this morning or even this afternoon. So today I'm going to be talking about the black religion and the black radical tradition. Now in some senses I think as a black person living in the western hemisphere who's of a religious persuasion, on one level one can't help but be radical. As Curtis Mayfield outlines, we, the people who are darker than blue, have had to face particular special circumstances in the Western Hemisphere, had to go through the horrors of enslavement, face the dread of colonial rule. In the US, Jim Crow segregation, South Africa, apartheid. And in the face of these horrors, we've also then had to face Western idealism. And as I try to outline in our article, Ethics from the Underside, which appears in the Routledge Handbook of Ethics and International Relations, what we faced is a kind of Western hypocrisy whereby the West outlines pious declarations of human rights, charters and sayings, but that when it comes to people of African descent, they have felt at the margins of those declarations, whereas if those declarations don't apply to them, that somehow as African peoples, we have been perceived as less than. So one can have a declaration of human rights, one can have a charter, but that African descendants have been outside of that framework. How else do we explain what has happened to us at the same time these very charters of human rights were being written? But African descendants haven't taken that set of scenarios and circumstances lying down. As one exponent of a black radical faith tradition has outlined, Bob Marley, we've been trodding on the wine press much too long. Rebel, rebel. We've been taken for granted much too long. Rebel, rebel. But it takes a special kind, in a sense, of thought, an ideal, to want to rebel in the face of the onslaught of the Western Hemisphere sphere in which we find ourselves. I would argue that white supremacy was not just a physical terror, that it was also a social, psychological, economic 
and even religious terror that was visited upon people of African descent. So it takes, in a way, a special kind of thought to try and resist those ideals that have been thrown at us. And uh, Gaylord Wilmore, in his text, Black Religion and Black Radicalism, he outlines three characteristics as what he describes in relation to the black radical tradition. Because he argues that not all religions, not all black religions or all black exponents of faith espouse a kind of radicalism. So he outlines three characteristics that comprise radicalism. He says that one, it's a quest for independence from white control. Two, the revalorization of the image of Africa. And three, the acceptance of protest and agitation as theological prerequisites for black liberation and the liberation of all oppressed peoples. So those are three characteristics that he outlines that make for a distinct black radical religious tradition. Judith Wazenfield in New World Are Coming adds to that and kind of outlines that a radical religious tradition is one that combines notions of religion and race. And she argues that black people, particularly in the African-American context, have expressed an agency when it comes to their expression of faith. And it's that combination of religion and race, which means that, that has enabled African-Americans to look for alternative landscapes and to fashion faith traditions that have been more than how the Western Hemisphere has characterised them. And she says that I employ religio-racial in a more specific sense here to designate a set of early 20th century black religious movements whose members believe that understanding black people's true racial history and identity revealed their correct and divinely ordained religious orientation. So in a sense, it's those two ideas, this combination of religion and race. And then also Wilmore's idea, looking beyond white control, valorization of Africa, and a religious impulse that seeks to work on behalf of, of oppressed peoples, that's in a sense is how I want to frame the rest of my talk as we explore the religious um, tradition. And I would argue that that tradition is still required in the 21st century. So I argue in that piece, Ethics from the Underside. When we see black bodies in the Mediterranean Sea, when we see pronouncements in relation to COVID, no one's safe until everyone's safe, and yet black bodies are still dying disproportionately, one might argue 
we need a radical tradition. And the question may be asked then, well, what has been the religious response to those ideals and to the quest that we face as African descendants in the world? And at heart, one would argue that experience has also made us radical. That when one thinks about the 12 million Africans that were shipped across the Atlantic, the millions that didn't make it, and that some of the ships that carried those Africans had missionaries on board those vessels, one can only think that the religious responses that need to respond to that need to be radical. And we might ask, actually, why, in some senses, has the response not been more radical? That some of the religious response, as I say, they're emanating from Africa and the diaspora, that has been muted or pious, perhaps that is the surprise. So where to think about some of these radical roots? So I will start in 1791 on the island of San Domingue. Here, what some at the time would have described as a motley crew of enslaved Africans rose up and overcame the might of French, Spanish, and British imperial power to create the first independent republic in the Western Hemisphere. I could say a lot about it, but just for today, I want to say that religion was also at the heart of the radical impulse that challenged that system, that the faith practice of voodoo, or voodoo, as might be called in common parlance, was the spiritual mechanism that inspired that group of enslaved Africans to create the first independent republic in the Western Hemisphere and to overthrow white supremacy. Again, at the time and even today, the religion was seen as pagan, unsophisticated, but actually it was a very sophisticated faith practice. How was it that enslaved Africans, hardly any weapons, hardly training, could come and overthrow the might of the Western Hemisphere. Radical religion was at the heart of that movement to bring about change. And what happened in Saint-Domingue, which then became Haiti, had reverberations across the Americas and the wider Caribbean and inspired a range of resistances to enslavement. And again, at the heart of that radicalised resistance were African descendants who were using their faith as inspiration to create alternative narratives, which then led to actual practical, physical resistance to enslavement. So here in the first picture on the left is uh, Harriet Tubman. I think maybe hopefully some people would have seen the movie Harriet, played brilliantly by Cynthia Erivo. And what's interesting in the movie and what's interesting in her life story, again, is how spirituality, the visions 
that she had that was giving her the idea that she needed to play a role in resisting enslavement. Next to that, here we have uh, Nat Turner, Nat Turner's Bible. Nat Turner was an itinerant preacher in 1830s, uh, Virginia, and led a major slave revolt in the Americas. Again, using his Bible to bring out biblical texts that could overthrow what the slave masters were saying in relation to religion and faith. In a sense, if the slave masters were proclaiming a faith identity that was pious, slaves obey your masters, wait till you go to heaven for change to occur, here were African-Americans with alternative readings, alternative ways of imagining what the world could be like, which was leading to practical change and resistance to the oppression that they were facing. We also see inklings of the radical impulse in the namings of some of the first organized churches that come from the Caribbean and the African-American experience. So on the right, you have uh, George Leal, African-American, that was one of the first black missionaries to Jamaica. But he names his church, the founding of his church, as the African Baptist Church. To the left, we have uh, Richard Allen, famous uh, Methodist, who, with his group, were denied the opportunity to pray in their Methodist congregation. So they walk out of that congregation, and Richard Allen forms his own church in Philadelphia in the 1790s, the African Methodist Church. And W.E.B. Du Bois, famous uh, sociologist, theorist, talks about this idea of by maintaining the name African in the foundation of these churches, exemplified that they weren't just accepting faith as the status quo in the society. They were looking for something else, an alternative, an alternative space, an alternative narrative. And as Gayrod Wilmot outlined, in a sense, that second piece, that valorization of Africa, to say that we are not less than, in fact, we are more than. And signifying Africa suggested that they could say we are actually more than. These narratives can be quite complex, as I say. When one is dealing with the onslaught of white supremacy, the response might not always be purely radical in the sense of opposition to the status quo, but a set of complex ideas and complex relations are at play for many of these people. This might be exemplified in someone like Sojourner Truth here on the left. Born Isabella Bormfree, a enslaved African, gains her freedom, has a life of fighting for the freedom of her children, and becomes a prominent abolitionist. Name changes to that of Sojourner Truth, suggesting a seeker after truth, a seeker after religious freedom and identity. But at the same time as she's touring the country, preaching a message of 
anti-abolitionism and feminism, she's also looking for the second coming of Christ. He's also preaching a evangelical message, as it were. But for her, in a sense, the two things went hand in hand. A bit like, in a sense, the biblical narrative in Hebrews that talks about Abraham looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Sojourner Truth is looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, but at the same time, she's fighting for women's rights. At the same time, she's fighting against the enslavement of her brothers and sisters. To the right is uh, E.W. Blyden, born in the Danish West Indies, but becomes famous for his work in Liberia, where he becomes an educator, politician, and faith leader. Writes a famous book called Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race. And in that book, he tried to posit what religion should African descendants follow? What is best for them, given their experience of enslavement and colonialism? Can they really follow Christianity if that is perceived to be the white man's religion? So he says that he favours Islam, which lends itself much more to notions of people of African descent. He also is one of the early proponents of arguing that African descendants that are in the West, that are in the US, that they're in the Caribbean, should return to Africa and see Africa as a place of redemption. It's one of the forefathers of the idea of pan-Africanism, the idea that African peoples need, are linked, and that they have a unity that they need to use for their liberation. And he's also a proponent of the idea of the African personality, that somehow there's a way of being African in the world that is different from being Western in the world, that the African personality is a spiritual personality, is a loving personality, and that, and that that has religious roots. Those ideas, both Pan-Africanism and African personality, later become foundational in future African liberation struggles. So Kwame Nkrumah, first president of independent Ghana, a strong advocate of that African personality. Nkrumah also says the liberation of Ghana means nothing without the liberation of the continent, so taking on board the Pan-African ideals. So these notions travel far, in a sense. That radical tradition moves beyond the spheres from, what, from which it might have been originally intended. Time doesn't permit me to say too much about Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois. One thing we can say about Du Bois, and again, I'd urge you to read Alden Morris's towering work, The Scholar Denied, which looks at the contribution of Du Bois as one of the founding fathers of sociology, one of the intellectual giants of 20th century thought. But what's key for Du Bois, though he's an agnostic, he recognises that faith and church are inextricably tied to the future of the African-American experience, and that his writings really outline and kind of say that. 
and that he was not only just an intellectual thinker, but that intellect had to be combined with activism, with struggles for justice and civil rights. And in the same sense, Ida B. Wells, again, a prominent anti-lynching campaigner, and that drive of faith plus activism, the one's religion couldn't just exist in the church, in the mosque, in the temple, that it had to have a practical, direct impact on the lived experience of African descendants. And again, that's another theme that emerges out of the radical tradition. That activism wasn't just theory, that activism had to be lived, that people were part of communities, communities of action and activism. In a sense, that brings us into the era of civil rights. And again, people see they know Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, but what is not discussed as often and what should be discussed is that these people came from communities. They came out of activist traditions that had faith at their heart, that combination of faith and lived activism. So Malcolm X, his father, was a Garveyite. Garvey has links, links to London. He was a student at Birkbeck. He was from Jamaica in the Caribbean. His Universal Negro Improvement Association movement came to prominence most prominently in the United States. And Garvey articulated this idea, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad, that Africans, wherever they were, needed to be linked. And again, spiritual impulse drove that idea that Africans needed to be linked. So Malcolm X emerges out of that tradition. His radical black nationalism that gets expressed through the nation of Islam and then later through his conversion to Islam has its roots in a much deeper set of communities and community values. Now, um, Martin Luther King, people all know Martin Luther King, I have a dream, etc., etc. But again, what's not discussed as much is that King came from community. He was a minister of a, of a church, of churches that had a tradition of working for the community, of working in spaces of activism. King was a student, student at Morehouse College in Atlanta. And again, people sometimes talk as if King dropped out of the sky, went to India and got these ideas of nonviolence. But nonviolence and those ideas were being discussed at Morehouse College in the 1920s, in the 1930s. One of King's uh, great mentors, the great philosopher and guru Howard Thurman, has already been to India, had already been practicing these ideas of nonviolent racial integration in the US. 
before the emergence of King and the civil rights. So, as I say, I suppose that my key argument here is that these men, these people, they came from communities, that the radical tradition and the impulse stems from those communities. Alder Morris, in another one of his books, The Origins of the Civil Rights Movement, talks about the civil rights movement being successful because the community utilised indigenous resources. They utilised the skills that was emanating out of the black church tradition to forge that legacy of resistance. That out of the churches, out of the mosques, out of the different traditions, one sees the emergence of newspapers, banking, social and community institutions that was able to keep the community alive in difficult times, but which also birthed activists and action. That, and these people weren't just engaged in theory, as I say, they were engaged in activism. And one could talk about many different um, faith traditions and how those faith traditions have spawned activism. Which is why I like talking in a sense about Rastafarianism, both the nation of Islam, is how faith traditions, in some senses, all faith traditions are constructions of one kind or another. But here we see faith traditions that are constructed out of the residue of racism and oppression, where people posit that they want to be more than who the world and who the system says that they are. So in the nation of Islam, white people become the devil, speaking to the oppression and the alienation that black Americans have experienced in the Western Hemisphere. And they fashion and forge a faith tradition that speaks directly to their lived experience of African descendants. So regardless what we might think in theological and ethical terms about positing your oppressor as the devil and having certain kind of markers, it still has a radical impulse to say that here is an alternative way of conceptualising the world. Similarly, in Rastafarianism, born in Jamaica in the 1920s, thousands of miles away from Africa. But here are people positing, proclaiming a faith that says the Messiah is from Africa, the Redeemer is African, and that Africans, descendants from all over the globe, need to return home to Zion, need to return home to that place of salvation. So again, positing a faith in the Western Hemisphere that is taking pride and dignity in being black, that is valorizing Africa, and that is speaking to oppressed peoples, giving them a sense of upliftment and pride in who they are when the society is telling them that they are less than. So those are, again, important considerations. So it's post 
civil rights, moving us maybe now into the more contemporary era. One of the key radical traditions, I would say, that has kind of emerged out of the African-American tradition is that of black liberation theology. And here we have James Cone and Katie Cannon, founding fathers, mothers of the tradition, and both died quite recently. It's again why I wanted to kind of honor them in a sense by placing them here. So post-civil rights in the US, you have the emergence of the Black Power Movement and the emergence of the Black Panthers. Kind of disillusioned with the lack of progress that some people felt had emerged after civil rights and speaking a much more strident language of black empowerment. But again, what was the religious response to this? If King had been marketed in a way as, a, as an integrationist, as bringing people together, although he was much more than that, after his death in 68, if that was said to have failed, that the streets in the US were on fire, black nationalists were now calling for a much more strident, empowering, protectionist approach, how were the faith traditions going to respond? Does James Cone meets that challenge with his book, Black Theology and Black Power, arguing that God needs to be on the side of oppressed people. And that if your God wasn't on the side of oppressed people, then, in effect, you had a worthless religion. Thinking about the absurdities of black life, the horrors of lynching, the horrors of enslavement, and of Jim Crow segregation, he posits, well, actually, Christ was the victim of a lynching by an imperial power, Rome. So Christ can identify, therefore, with the black experience. And that one needs a faith, a religious tradition, that is reflective of one's experience. And that that tradition, then, needs to speak, first, to African descendants that are oppressed, but to all people that are marginalised and oppressed. Katie Cannon, one of the forebears of the womanist tradition, then takes that and critiques the black liberation for tradition for being too masculinist in its orientation, for not listening to the voices of women who are at the forefront, who have been at the forefront of all the liberation struggles in the US, have been central to all of those struggles, but again have been placed on the margins that white men, white women, black men have always been positive, posited at the forefront and they have been left behind. So if one is seeking true liberation, true emancipation, a true spirituality that has love, inclusion, justice at its heart, then one needs to put black women at the forefront of that. One needs to reflect and think again. So that's what's been emerging out of that black radical tradition.
So, draw to a close. How we might then think about the future. What might the black radical tradition look like? And if you think, as I said, as we started, I started with Gaylord's, Wilmore's idea that one needed a tradition, a radical tradition that was free from white control, a tradition that valorized Africa, and a tradition that, that sought liberation for oppressed peoples. Many people saw the movie Black Panther, but in that movie, what was being posited and suggested was a black liberationist future. Here, you had a nation in Africa that was free from white control. Here, you had a nation that was replete with spiritual traditions emanating from the continent, emanating from the experience of the diaspora. Here, you had superheroes that were fighting oppression, fighting the notions that white is right and that white power was all there to be in the world. So in a sense, suggesting a different kind of imaginary. And I think, in a way, that's where the tradition is still moving, that even when we look at movements such as Black Lives Matter, movements that, in some senses, not denied, but in some senses we're saying, actually, the old civil rights struggle was too leadership-driven, too male-focused, and that we need a movement that is much more inclusive. Still, with social justice at its core, still with a deep sense of spirituality, but a spirituality that couldn't be centred around misogyny or homophobia, one that had to be much more inclusive and have a much more radical, inclusive imagination. But still, when you listen to interviews with the leaders of BLM movements, it's interesting that they are conversant with the black liberation tradition, that they are versed in that spirituality, that they are versed in that history, that one spirituality combined with the lived experience has to be the basis for bringing about radical change. That's the history, that's the present, and we hope that justice will be achieved so that it doesn't continue to have to be our future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.